Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How to ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking with Tina Guidry, who is the owner of Clinician with a Mission. Hi, Tina. Hi, Shana and Shira. It's good to see you. So great to see you. Yeah, we actually met Tina um, a couple of years ago now. Uh, three years was the beginning of COVID. Tina was kind of the expert in all things telehealth. And so we reached out to Tina and we did a joint webinar. And I know that our members in our community got a ton of value for it. Not just our members. I was going through a personal yeah. then yeah. in terms of how do I get up online? What do I do? And it was great because we did this joint webinar and Tina gave us so much advice. It was awesome. So thank you for that. You were ahead of the curve then. And I think you're kind of always like on the forefront of the next thing that's coming up. So we're really excited to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, those were a weird times, but exciting. And and look at you now. You're up and running and you've gone way, way past anything that I would have recommended, but you're doing wonderful. And I've been tracking how you're helping BCBAs, RBTs, BCABs all around the world. So congratulations. Thank you. What we love about it is also the people we get to meet. So we're very grateful for all the collaboration and, and people that we're able to meet. So with that, if you can give us a brief introduction on your background, how you got into ABA, and, and a little bit about you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, my background is I started back in the 90s, and I was being called every day by my son's school. I was on speed dial, and they were like, we don't know what to do. Your kid's running up and down the hallways. Um, he's, he's telling everybody he's going to call his mom. You know, He doesn't want to stay in the classroom. And I was like, well, that's funny. He doesn't like that at home, you know? <laughs> so my little guy had an emerging mood disorder and I was thrown into the world of advocacy and I didn't know what I was doing, right? And so I decided to go back to school and I learned more about behavior so I could help him and what was going on with him. And then a beautiful professor, he became my mentor and my advisor, Dr. Craig Kennedy, kind of recruited me and he said, hey, I think you'd be really interested in ABA. And I said, what is this? And so I became a student. I went and got my master's. I became a research assistant. 
And I worked in a beautiful combination program where I did experimental analysis in the lab. And then I did applied behavior analysis out in schools and residential communities. So I had this beautiful amalgamation of experiences that really kind of brought to the forefront where my interest really did lie. And my passion was helping people with disabilities and really specifically mental health. And so, and that was personally going to benefit me and my family and my child, but then I could apply it to working in, in the communities. And so I did end up publishing in behavioral pharmacology journals on positive and negative reinforcement with animals and then then publishing with my professors in applied behavior analysis. And so the day came, though, you know, grants were paying me to work in the communities and work in the lab. And then they get, they came, I had to graduate and go get a J-O-B, right? And so I tell people that was 24, 25 years ago, and I'm still looking for a job. But I became accidentally self-employed because I was able to work in schools and in communities and really kind of carved out a, a consultation career for myself. And so really over the last 12 years, I've been concentrating on clinical supervisions, I do case consultations with different companies who have high intensity cases. And I also provide leadership trainings to companies and their leadership teams on task topics that are not on the task list. So like conflict resolution strategies, I'm a conflict resolution trainer, um, behavioral relaxation training, trauma-informed care in schools, and then acceptance and commitment therapy and how it overlays on top of all of it. So my primary part of my business is mentorship. So I mentor about 16 companies right now and their teams on how to scale and diversify their business. So, but that's a brief history of how I got started and what I'm doing right now. Wow. I mean, it's so important. We always say that what you need to pass the exam is so different than what you need to actually practice as a BCBA. And I love the fact that you're expanding beyond those task lists because it's not just about the skill you have in data collection and and analysis, but it's all those interpersonal things that are going to make you successful or not in this field. Um, and one of the things that I remember was a strong point for you was like the advocacy piece on how to like really push your weight through some of those things. I mean, it makes sense now hearing your story, but I'd love to hear more about like your passion for advocacy and how other people can, can, you know, find their place in that advocacy position. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. What I have been able to do is kind of package that advocacy into a focused mentorship strategy where I help clinical owners and myself push beyond what policies tell us we can and cannot do. So when I, it's almost like in my brain when someone says, oh, but we can't, or oh, but our policy says, or oh, but yeah, but no, right? I, I immediately think, well, that's not no, definitely. That's just maybe. Like I push right past it and I'll have you considered the regulations? Have you considered privacy and confidentiality? Have you considered values-based outcomes? And so when I start asking questions, open-ended questions that will get the conversation started, then we actually have some dialogue happening. And so I've been really pushing in on motivational interviewing these days on how to identify when people are ready to change, what does change talk sound like? Are in the in a denial phase? Are they in an awareness phase but don't know what to do? Are they in a planning phase? Are they ready to take action? And I find this in my parent consultations, 
my school consultations and my patient consultations where they are and then start asking them questions about how they want to participate in the process. And I've been doing that with schools a lot. So yeah, advocacy for me is um, second nature, but I think you have to balance advocacy with professional rapport and then bring in your therapeutic rapport. So it's a graduated kind of process where you're building relationships with people through acceptance and commitment therapy without being too jargony, without being too clinical. And, you know, I find that what's really kind of um, telling is that my mentorships are go on for years. People, uh, we may not meet every other week or maybe once a month or once a quarter, but my mentees tend to keep coming back and staying around like, okay, I'm ready to go to the next level. Okay, I'm ready to go to the next level. And so I work with people from anywhere from clinician who just wants to get their skill set outside the task list and keep improving to people who want to start their own business with zero clients and then people who work in schools and want to expand that part of their business or want to diversify and have home-based, clinic-based, and school-based services, which is really the ultimate goal if you're going to diversify your business and have funding sources that don't just silo you into one basket, right? One one area because we're seeing, at least here in the U.S., that the insurance model is shifting and changing. So I bring that to my mentees. I tell them, are you prepared for values-based care? We've been doing it in schools for decades. Are you prepared to do it now? You know, And so advocacy is definitely a big part of what I do. And then I package it into going uh, further in business and diversification. Mm-hmm. And like Shira said, it's like that one step further, Tina, you're always that one step further. So like values-based care, I've just made a note of my, to myself, like I got to write that down and you know, we do it and they don't teach that relationship building in textbooks. Uh, but it's something that most seasoned clinicians know how to do. But, you know, newer BCBAs need that mentorship typically to say, okay, well, did that conversation not go right? How did, how can I improve on this? Should I call it parent training? Should I call it parent coaching? Just little words and that type of thing as well. Well, you know, my, you know, I, I had a conversation with a parent and it was in person and they offered me a glass of water. Could I take it? The answer is yes, take the water. It's building. Um, but that, that values-based care needs to go not just with parents, but also with the you know, clients you're working with. And that is massive. And I love that you are taking that mentorship piece, even that one step further, because everybody, whether you're, you know, a new clinician or a seasoned clinician, it's great to bounce ideas off of everybody. You know, Shira and I do it all the time. It's awesome. And we forget that not everybody has, you know, a Shira to that Shana, right? Or Shana to that Shira. <laughs> That's right. You start <laughs> <laughs> they don't. In this case, they do. <laughs> But uh, you guys are so fortunate to have each other, you know, and, and, and that in itself is a mentorship, right, process. And so that's what I'm, you know, really focusing on is how do I share more of what I know? How do I share more of me? I was telling you guys earlier a few weeks ago that one of my mentees actually chastised me and she said, so Tina, you've been helping me grow my business for the last seven years. What are you doing? And I said, oh, um, I'm happy the way I am. She said, no, you need to think about letting people know what you do and who you are. I said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. But yeah, she lit a fire underneath me. And I thought, yeah, okay, it's time to jump in. You know, it's time to expand, you know. So tell us, what are you doing now? And what, how are you improving? And on that cutting edge, like you always are. Thank you for asking. Well, you know, a big catchphrase here in the U.S. and really it's spreading around everywhere is 
values-based outcomes and how to measure outcomes for our patients and families. And then the insurance funders are going to attach funding to the outcomes of your entire organization, not just one child. So if you have 80% of improvement, then they'll do a package rate for you. And a lot of clinical owners aren't ready for this. But we've been doing this in schools for decades, right? So we look at a school and we measure how are the students performing, right? We have performance measure outcomes in schools. So it's a shift for the clinical world, but not a shift for clinicians who work in schools. And so I want to help people understand that piece. So what I did was I started a membership site. So my membership is going to offer courses on topics outside of the task list. So acceptance and commitment therapy for yourself and for families and for teachers, trauma-informed care for schools, motivational interviewing when working with clients and colleagues and parents. Another one is making sure that we understand conflict resolution strategies. How do you identify someone who is having an obstacle and it becomes a conflict, a barrier to move forward? What words do you say? Well, we may have um, training in um, responding to someone who's having a high-intensity physical aggression or property structure or elopement, but how do you respond to someone who is just rigid and refusing? What words are you going to say, right? What, what kind of verbal strategies do you have? And so I was trained by a psychologist who's a leader in the field and, and really went through some intense training back in 2012 with a psychiatrist. And so I had a huge awakening that my words were so powerful and what I say and how I say it is very powerful. And that's where acceptance and commitment therapy came in. And I was a resistor to act for a while. I was like, I don't want to learn something new. But back in 2017, I did an eight-hour course over the course of eight months, and it was an amazing experience. And it's really changed how I practice now as a practitioner, and I want to share that. So by starting a membership through um, cliniciankwithamission.com, I'm starting the first membership phase is Clinical Connection. And so it's only $97 for the month, and for $97, you get me once a month, a personal session where we do um, questions and answers. Um, we'll also do some groups. You'll have access to all the courses and videos. So um, it's just my way of trying to help more people. And I just don't have all the hours in the week to provide it to everybody who would like the help. And I want to make it affordable. You know, um, I found that a lot of people can't afford those high dollar rates for mentorship and supervision. But if I gave you a one flat fee and you have all of these materials and all of this access to me and coaching and mentorship, then it does have bang for its buck. And I'm a CEU provider. So every course well, that you finish, you get a certificate. And it's, again, topics that are not on the task list. So I really want to bring those professionals who are ready to go the next level to the next level so that they can diversify their business, their consultation, and help more people, not just children with one diagnostic condition, where we're siloed right now in the, in the insurance funding world. You will only be funded for, you know, one diagnostic category. Every now and then you get an exception made for outside of that category. So, and don't get me wrong, that's needed. It's important. And it was fought for for so long, but we can't sit and just provide our services to one group of people. How is that diversified? Right. And so in schools, they let you work with all the children, no matter what their disability condition might be. Even if they don't have a disability, they will let you help them, right? 
So they're inviting us then. Schools are begging for help. Schools are begging for help for their teachers. The teachers need support. And the children and the students who are having trouble with anxiety and depression and mood disorders, emerging psychosis. And how do you identify it? And how do you work with it? So that's where my mission is, is really to help people upskill so that they can work in diverse communities with diverse people and cultures. And when you're only working with an insurance community, you're really only working with one segment of the population, right? So you're really not diversified in your funding or in the people that you serve and their access to services. But schools have all the communities, all the people who can afford insurance and can afford insurance and and from different cultures, from different backgrounds. That's true diversification. So that's where my mission is. Um, clinician with a mission. And uh, I know, just get me started, right? Just give me one topic and I'll keep talking, you know? Every time I talk to you, I get so excited and then I get overwhelmed. Like, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> and I love what you said about you know, the conflict resolution piece because I think when you come into this field, you know, you're all starry eyed and like optimistic. And I think everyone's going to love what you have to say because like I have all this data to support me. And after being in the field for a long time, I mean, it's still amazing. And we still do have a lot of, you know, great things to add, but you really, really, really need that. Like it really comes out more than you think it does. And being able to navigate those relationships is so huge. And I also want to say what you said about, you know, so many of us get stuck in like the dumb, like bubble. And I feel like people, you know, there is the funding for it and there is the insurance for it. But even if you stay in the autism world, you still have to see that individual as more than just, you know, the clinic. And without being able to support their parents and their teachers and their school and their community and other environments, we're kind of missing a big chunk of their lives, right? They're only going to be as successful. Their success is going to be determined in those settings, not in our setting. So do you have, uh, you know, someone who does want to kind of spread their wings and get better at those other settings and locations, whether it's a funding barrier or a relationship barrier? Do you have some advice for that person? Right. So I do recommend that you really dive in on understanding the six core components of acceptance and commitment therapy, understand psychological flexibility. I just did a psychological flexibility measure assessment with a group uh, a couple of hours ago before I met with you all. And we're just assessing ourselves as clinicians. How flexible am I? Am I ready to encounter people who are inflexible? And if I'm not, how how do I prepare myself for that, right? My flexibility, identify inflexibility or rigidity and to change from others, and then be able to um, work with those situations through identifying that talk that, and it really means you have to think outside of um, skill acquisition procedures or behavior reduction procedures. You have to think about okay, what does this person need from me right now? What's important to them? And what can I offer that would be helpful? And sometimes it's just really the difference between understanding empathy versus compassion. You know, empathy, I like to tell people is, I feel you. I feel the feelings you're feeling, but that leads to burnout when you do that too much. Can't leave it out. You got to bring it with you. You can't do it all day, every day. You've got to be able to switch to compassion, which is another way of saying, I see you. So I can see you and be with you, but not feel all the feels, right? So that's what I would tell people is really start looking inward, identify what you need to work on as a clinician, 
so that you have those relationship skills, right? And that's what I do in my membership site. I bring people from understanding regulations and rules and requirements to relationship and rapport. And how do you, how do you build those skills? You know, if I had uh, another topic I would add is that I really do want to help people with OBM. I think it's something that's hugely missing off the task list. And I do push in on that. I teach my teams how to do scorecards, how to do performance management, behavior systems analysis, how to make sure that they're doing training and development that matters and not repetitive. So um, uh, by doing leadership and culture um, components of OBM, you take that not only from your organization, but into homes and into schools. OBM lays on top of the task list. So that's how I see it. And so that's what I would hope to bring back to my membership is to those teams of communities of um, organizations like executive level. All right, let's talk about OBM. If you're going to be working in schools, if you're going to grow your organization, are you actually uh, implementing all eight stages, uh, components of the OBM uh, matrix? Really do a little bit of everything. (laughs) Is there any topic you're not covering? Um, Do you have a resource on OBM? I would love to hear. So I really like Chief Motivating Officer. I think uh, Shannon Biagi. Um, she's a great um, motivator for all things on OBM. But I also love Manny Rodriguez. I'm going through his book with several of my teams. It's called Organizational Behavior Management. So we use it as a guide for continuing to upskill the set data set for leadership teams. So I'm meeting with a team in back tomorrow and we're going to, everybody's doing their own scorecard. They have to put their own KPIs, key performance indicators or in their scorecard and rate themselves. And so uh, that's how I find there's, there's benefit there. And that's where people enjoy, I think enjoy working with me is because I don't just tell them to read something. I actually do it with them. So I'm doing the BST model in my mentorships, right? So I'm, I'm showing, I'm talking, I'm there. They have the, the, the written part in front of them. And then I model it. I model it. They get to practice and I give them feedback. So I think that's the beautiful part of mint, a good solid mentorship, right? And that's what you guys do. When I watch your videos, you are modeling. You're giving practice opportunities. You give feedback to each other. And it, and it is a natural, right? It should be natural. But when you practice, you get better at it. So I'm even a little overwhelmed with all the topics now. I need to go research after, <laughs> after talking to you. But you know, if there was a new BCBA just getting into the field, I would imagine the overwhelm was even greater. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah. So to new BCBAs, I would say you need to find a strong mentor. You need to be okay with growing slowly and growing over time. Give yourself a good five years, five years to grow, to learn, develop. Then you can offer mentorship to others, right? But you need at least that five years. But that's, the big piece that I would offer. What would you all say? Same. I think it's a little bit of like, I love what you said about compassion, humility, always be learning. I think we come into this field, like I said, like just so zealous and like wanting to overachieve. And then like, you kind of learn some things the hard way. (laughs) You don't need to do everything all at once. Yes. You write the exam and it gives you, I guess, that license to do Anything you want to do, but really it's, you know, hit the ground running for sure. But, you know, if you take on too much at once, it leads to a lot of burnout. So, you know, go slowly, grab a mentor and stay with your passion. Totally. Amen. And amen. I think I accidentally had great mentors. Um, 
So I think if you are purposeful about finding a mentor, find someone and diversify it. Make sure you find someone who understands medical. Make sure you understand someone who understands educational, right? There are different components to really grab. If someone had told me I would be doing OBM, you know, 10 years ago, I would be like, no, I don't think so. I really like what I'm doing right now. And, but what I was doing was OBM. I was teaching schools how to put systems in place, right? I was teaching families how to put systems in place. So, oh, that's OBM. Oh, I, okay. Right. And so that it's just having the language connected to my actions, right? Ladies, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I'm honored. You know, you're doing a webinar for us in September. It's September 20th. Everybody who wants to join, it's 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, September 20th. It's an ethics credit as well. So any of you who need ethics, come join. But even better than that, I actually really like the topic. Diversifying your practice to include school contracts. And in that webinar, you're going to be talking about you know, part of the ethical code, but also about school contracts. You want to give us a little bit of a preview about what's going to happen there? Absolutely. We're going to talk about, number one, a business plan and what that looks like, all the components. And I have a booklet I'll be sharing to anybody who wants it. It'll be a free resource. And it covers all the components of making sure you have a solid business plan and it addresses those OBM pieces. So I'll be walking everyone through that and then really packing in different funding sources so that I hear a lot of time, um, oh, it's so hard to work in schools that they're resistant. They say we can't be there. They have a policy, but insurance is hard and it takes four months to six months to get credentialed with insurance. But in schools, it takes 30 days, right? So it's going to be hard. Running a business is hard, but you have to be okay with, okay, there are different systems and how that moves. So that's a little bit how we'll be talking during that webinar is how to move through setting up a solid business that's sustainable for more than five years, right? You don't want to be in and out of there. You want to set it up and let it just run itself for the, you know, future so that you can help as many people as you want to help and be as big or as small as you want to be, right? That sounds great. We're really looking forward to that. Where can people find you? I am clinicianwithamission.com and my email is tinagidrybcba at gmail.com. So it's T-I-N-A-G-U-I-D-R-Y-B-C-B-A at gmail.com. And um, I'm looking to maybe getting a new email like Tina at Clinician with a Mission, but it's not there yet. But yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll put all that in the as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thanks for being here and sharing with us and kind of putting motivating us now to like get more into any one of these topics. We're excited to hear from you again in September. Great. Thank you so much, Shira. Shana, thank you for your time today. That was great talking as always. All right. Bye. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.